There are moments in our lives that take our breath away. Moments where time stands still and our hearts ache for more, and, and yet they're satisfied at the same time. When, when we experience, see, taste, or, or feel something that is so glorious that we can't even find words to express what's going on. It, it is transcendence. Uh, a bliss-filled, awe-inspiring encounter with the most beautiful things in this world and in our lives. I remember a few of those first moments when, when beauty overtook me. Uh, one of them was uh, where my family camped growing up in, in the mountains of central Idaho. We'd, we'd climb this peak in the morning, and we, we would see, as far as you could see, roadless wilderness. Just a jaw-dropping, mind-blowing, knock-you-over view. Something that just steals your breath away. I remember the first time a story really captured me. When I was 15 years old, I, I watched the movie Amistad, and it was so important, so meaningful and emotional, I just didn't even know what to do with what I felt inside. And maybe for you, it was the, it was the first time you listened to Mozart's Requiem, uh, or, or maybe it was when you read Jane Eyre and, and you fell in love with Charlotte Bronte's story. Maybe it was in a museum seeing a fresco by an Italian master or one of Rembrandt's masterpieces. Maybe your heart is captured by the beauty of nature. Maybe it's Patagonia or the towering Rocky Mountains or the Kenai Peninsula of southern Alaska. For some of you, maybe, maybe it's an opening day sunrise at Fenway Park. Maybe for some of you, your heart leaps when you see postseason heroics by, by our man, David Ortiz. Maybe for some like me, it was the first time you watched or, or listened to Weezer's Blue Album. Am, am I the only one? That was, that was, an, important, that was an important moment for me. <clears throat> or, or maybe more seriously, when, when you saw your wife walking down the aisle in that wedding dress for the first time. Or, or maybe it was the life-altering, mind-bending moment when you met your first child for the first time. There you go. Elsie May. Um, I'm, I'm starting to realize I can't get through a sermon without talking about Elsie or the Red Sox. I think I have an issue. <clears throat> There's this phenomena that's universal, things that are so stunningly beautiful that you can't look away or, or think or, or, or stop looking at them. What is this thing that, that we call beauty? Why are our brains captured in rapt attention? What purpose does beauty serve us biologically? Where did beauty come from? The answer from the perspective of evolutionary biology is just a flat, we don't know yet. It does not seem to serve us any purpose. And, and if it does, it's incredibly overdeveloped in us as a trait, as Richard Dawkins has suggested, to be beyond useful from any evolutionary standpoint. There are dozens of theories about why beauty exists, but none of them have any consensus. Naturalism nor materialism have any good way of making sense of the purpose of beauty. It seems to be a uniquely human attribute, and it's why every culture in the world doesn't just make things, but they make beautiful things. They make beautiful things. 
things that are pleasing to the eye and to the touch. Music seems to, to especially play no role in any sort of evolutionary process. Yet for many, many people, music is where they feel the most aching, longing, spiritual attention. It's where they connect with what is beyond, beyond the material, with, with the transcendent. So where does this thing come from? Why do we seem finely tuned for beauty? Many, many people think that this argument for God from beauty is, is pretty new from C.S. Lewis in the 20th century, but, but we see it much earlier. St. Augustine, some 1,600 years ago in his confessions, he makes the argument that these unfulfillable desires in us, they're clues to the reality of God. Well, well how so? Well, if, uh, if you have something like hunger for a steak or bacon, th- those correspond to real things in the world. It, just because you desire them may not mean that you get them, but you desire them because they are real. Each of us, each of our desires for, for sex, for food, for comfort, they all have corresponding things in the real world. But we all have a longing for joy and love and beauty that no amount or quality of food, sex, or comfort could ever give us. Isn't that at least a clue that something exists? This, this longing, this unfulfilled longing. Maybe it qualifies then as a deep innate human desire, and it's a, maybe even a major clue for us to believe that God is there. As C.S. Lewis made sense of this problem in the 20th century, this is what he said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. He, he's saying that our, if our appetite cannot be fulfilled in what we can see, touch, taste, or hear, It must be beyond our earthly appetites. And and I think this question is where we need to go. Why do we have these feelings? Why why do millennials say that a fulfilling career is more important than making lots of money? Why do we create meaning out of everything? Why do we make art and are drawn to beauty? Even beautiful, simple, everyday things like hand towels and dishes from Target, we want them to be pretty. We want them to be nice. It would seem it would seem that we might be made to ask these questions because we exist and we have these incredible minds that perceive their place in the world. We can't help but ask where we come from and what it all means. This searching for longing, for beauty and meaning, they're intertwined with our desire to experience transcendence, to go beyond the physical reality of our everyday lives and to consider what is beyond. Romans chapter 1 is a place where we see that the early Christians, even in the first century, believed that beauty and nature were a part of the plan for us to see who God is. It says this, what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse." What the writer of Romans is saying here is that all of nature, beauty, and even human culture, the great things that we see, they're there for us to think about where they came from, to think about the thing that made everything happen. Even Jesus tells us in Luke 19 that if if people don't cry out to God, the rocks will cry out in their place. Nature can't help but tell us that there's something beyond this world that caused everything. 
uh, with a writer of uh, Alvin Plantinga, who's a, who's a prominent philosopher of religion. He, he's identified up to three dozen, three dozen different lines of argumentation or reasons to believe in God. Uh, we have rehearsed many of those through the last three weeks of this series we're calling Unbelievable. None of them by themselves are just a bulletproof reason to believe that God exists, that there is a creator that made the universe and everything in it. Now, some are, are really compelling. I think a couple of the most compelling ones are the regularity of nature. When we look at the whole universe and as simple human beings, we're able to describe it the way that it works in simple mathematical equations, that speaks to design. That speaks to this world working in just the right way for us to be here. I think, I think another compelling argument that we've touched on is the teleological argument where the universe and this earth in particular, it moved from chaos and disorder to beauty and life rather than the way that the rest of nature works which is it moves from beauty and order to chaos. The law of entropy tells us that's the way the universe works. Some, for some reason, this world moved towards order, towards the expression of human culture and the beautiful things we see. These are, these are some compelling things. But Plantinga says that none of those three dozen reasons to believe in God, none of them on their own demand belief. But when you take them together as clues to a larger picture, a larger puzzle, they make a compelling case for belief. Tim Keller, he lays this out pretty well in, in one of his chapters of the book, The Reason for God. I think for me, beauty is the one that seals the deal. We have these longings and aches and desires for an ordered, beautiful existence to see meaning in our experience. I think that we have these aches because we were made to discover that there is more than meets the eye when it comes to this world and to our lives. It's compelling. I really think it's compelling. But I recognize that it's not convincing to everyone. There's one more objection, I think, over this series that I really want to hit on. And uh, that is, I think that we have to work through as we consider the doubts that many people can struggle with in their journey of faith. This objection is that people who are religious who call themselves Christians, sometimes we all are hypocrites and judgmental and we make the world a bad place. This is the basis of the good without God groups, that, that movement. Um, they contend that religion is bad for us and that if we can just get rid of religion, the world will be a better, more peaceful place. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time refuting those claims. So many have in so many other places. Do a Google search. Take a look at what's out there. But I, I, I want to talk through it. They say that the proof of the pudding is in the eating, or, or most people make the mistake in the metaphor in saying that the proof is in the pudding. Uh, maybe more clearly we could say that good trees produce good fruit and bad trees produce bad fruit. We need to look together at what people do as an expression of this Christian faith to see if what it is is actually good. Does it make the world a better, more just, equitable, and joy-filled place? That's a good question to ask. Well, first, I want to acknowledge that Christians have done some awful things in the world. Like, let's, let's not pretend like that's not true. I have no delusion about that, but I, I want to say that those things that people did, they're not expression of God's love or what Christ taught us. 
but instead are using Christianity to justify themselves, to drape themselves in religion, to shield them from criticism. Every philosophical tradition, every religion, they have an element, a group of people, either fundamentalist extremists or just radical cynics that use religion to gain power and to inflict their will on others. And, and this includes atheists, where we see that the two most prominent atheist countries in the world killed nearly 50 million people in the 20th century, a, a good portion of which were religious minorities and political dissidents. If every religion and every philosophy has those people in it, how can we judge between them? How can we judge what is good and what is better? I would propose that the worst expressions of a faith are a poor way to measure them. Maybe, just instead, their best expressions, the most pure expressions of that faith, is a better way to judge between them. So where does this objection come from then? Why do people think that Christianity in particular and religion in general makes the world a bad place? I think it's hypocrisy among the religious. It's always been a good story in the media. Um, here in America, when religious people do things that seem wrong, contradicting their own faith, it always makes headlines. Ira Glass is the host of a popular NPR radio show called This American Life. And as an agnostic, um, Jewish by heritage, he, he shares a little bit in this interview we're about to watch what he sees as an inconsistency between the media portrayal of Christians and his actual experience with people that he knows. Let's watch it. And there came a point like early on in the show where I just noticed that the way the Christians are portrayed in movies and on television is almost always as these crazy people you know, like, like these doctrinaire, hothead, crazy people, whereas the Christians in my life were all incredibly wonderful and thoughtful and, and had very ambiguous, uh, complicated feelings in their beliefs and seemed to be totally generous-hearted and totally open to, to like, a lot of different um, kinds of people in their lives and just seemed to be, like, even the people who were fundamentalists, like, not just like, you know, you're sort of like garden variety Protestants, but the people who are really right. like fundamentalist Christians. There's, a, there's somebody I work with named, named uh, Nora, who's a new at NPR, who had been raised fundamentalist. And, there, and, uh, and there's a, a lot of people at WBEZ in Chicago who were really strong Christians and had their Bibles at their desks and would invite you to see that series of movies where the people are, the rapture movies. You know what I mean? Like, you, you know, if you were like, um, you know, friendly person around the office, you'd get invited to the rapture movies and stuff. Right. Like, like, like there were just Christians in my lives who I really felt close to and adored who were nothing like the way the Christians were being portrayed. And as somebody doing documentaries, I just thought, like, what Christians really are is not being captured by the press. And so that just created an opportunity for us to, to document w the way people live their religion. It just seemed like a really interesting thing that nobody was talking about. I remember there was a scene in um, the movie Three Kings, uh, which is a movie, one of my favorite movies, which is about the first Iraq war, where, where one of the actors, at one point during the script, just goes off, one of, the, one, of the, one of the characters just goes off and prays. Like, you know, he's in a bad situation, he just goes off and prays. And it's not like a plot point, it's not like a big deal. Right. He just happens to have faith. And I remember seeing that and thinking, 
I have never seen that in a movie where like it's not like a point like this means he's a good guy or this means like he's a bad guy. Right. He's just somebody who has faith. Doing what he does. Doing what he does, and yeah. it's like it's just a thing. Yeah. Like just like, and I felt like, and I remember it, it, this is all that movie's years old, and it was around the time we were doing this. I was like, see, that's what I'm talking about. Like, like we just we, we should just be capturing the way people are living their faith. I've always wanted to share a stage with Ira Glass, so I can check that off my bucket list. Uh, what Ira describes here, I think, is a, is a point of friction that many people feel. There's the way that Christians out there appear in the media, and maybe the way that they see uh, Westboro Baptist or Ted Haggard or Televangelist, but that's contrasted with the people that they know in their lives, that they experience day in and day out. The people that they know who are Christians, even the most conservative, fundamentalist, Bible-believing people are genuine, kind, caring, generous, peace-loving people. This contrast is important because the, the truth in general is not the media portrayal. Westboro Baptist is like 12 people in the middle of nowhere, and many mistakenly see them as being, one, Christian, and two, representing anything other than the cult that they are. Instead, the, the vast majority of people that take Jesus seriously are the people that fill the world with grace and hospitality. And I think this is an important part of my own story of faith. When I was running away from God and I was failing on my own as a 19-year-old college student, a friend came along and he walked with me through my doubts and my struggles. He heard the confessions of my failures. He asked honest, thoughtful questions. And he told me and showed me that I was loved and cared for by him and by God. I'd been working through my doubts intellectually. I'd been reading and studying everything I could about God and Christianity and science and atheism. I had hit an emotional roadblock, and I needed a person to come alongside me and to embody God's love. And God met me in that place. And it was the turning point. It was really the turning point for my faith, one of those transcendent moments where the kind words of a friend, a listening ear, and a hug were all the reasons that I needed to see, to believe that God loved me. I could know that he loved me because one of his people were a physical representation of his caring presence in my life. You see, not only is beauty a reason to believe in God, but believing in God creates beauty in this world. Nicholas Kristof, uh, just a couple weeks ago, he echoed the sentiments of Ira Glass in a New York Times op-ed piece. This is what he said. Today, among urban Americans and Europeans, evangelical Christian is sometimes a synonym for rube. In liberal circles, evangelicals constitute one of the few groups it's safe to mock openly. And yet, the liberal character of evangelicals is incomplete and unfair. I've been truly awed by those I've seen in so many remote places combating illiteracy and warlords, famine and disease, humbly struggling to do the Lord's work as they see it. And it is offensive to see good people derided. Now, Nicholas Kristof disagrees vehemently with lots of conservative people, lots of Christian people. He says that. But then he, here he goes on to tell about Dr. Stephen Foster. He's the son of a retired Grace Chapel global partner, Belva Foster, and her husband, Bob, who passed away. Dr. Stephen Foster is a 65-year-old missionary servant, surgeon that's been serving in a hospital in Angola for 37 years. Christoph writes about meeting him and seeing the amazing work that he has done. 
where most of that time it was under the watchful eye of a Marxist, atheist regime that was hostile to Christianity. But the government said that they allowed them there because Christians were the only ones that were willing to come and to serve in such harsh conditions. He ends the piece, Christoph ends the piece, noting that the disproportionate share of aid workers that he has met in the wildest places over the years, long after anybody sensible had evacuated, had been evangelicals, nuns, and priests. I don't think this is an isolated incident. This is not just the Foster family. Many throughout history who have followed Jesus have done beautiful things in the wildest places. Historians tell us that the Roman Empire was about one-third Christian, maybe even 100 million people by the year 400 AD. And they argued that the reason so many followed the way of Jesus, in spite of near constant persecution, is that the Christians were the only ones that cared for the sick and the dying when disease and plague would break out in their communities. Christians were the only ones that cared for the poor, even the poor that were not Christian. Christians were also the only people that would take in babies that were left to be exposed to death as a measure of postpartum abortion. Through their love and mercy for the poor and the most vulnerable, those that saw their steadfast and unconditional love would start following Jesus because they wanted to be like those people. Nearly, nearly every hospital in the Western world, including 75% of U.S. hospitals, were started as an expression of following Jesus in caring for the sick and the vulnerable. Modern medicine and medical science truly grew up out of a belief that life itself is sacred and worth preserving at great cost. This is a Christian ideal. The printing press itself was created for the explicit purpose of printing copies of the Bible so that more people could afford to own a copy of God's Word. Even the very first public school in the world, here in Boston, at Boston Latin School, was meant for the poor, and it was started by the Puritans because they believed that everyone should have the opportunity to learn to read and to read God's Word. Nearly every abolition movement of slavery in the world has begun as a religious impulse. Most notably, both in the United States and in Great Britain, the leaders and the vast majority of those that lobbied to end the slave trade were Christians that saw it as antithetical to their values. The women's suffrage movement, the vote for women, that movement started in churches and women's leagues of churches here in the United States. The Civil Rights Movement was fundamentally a Christian movement led by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a Baptist minister. The YMCA, Salvation Army, Boys and Girls Clubs, a majority of adoption agencies, women's shelters, crisis pregnancy centers, and food pantries were all started as expressions of Christian faith. World Relief, the Red Cross, World Vision, Compassion International, the majority of international aid work happening around the world they're all expressions of Christian faith. Even the environmental conservation movement and the Society for the Prevention of Animal Abuse started as expressions of Christian faith to protect and to steward God's creation. I'm not saying all of this to say, look at how great Christians are, you should be one. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that following Jesus has made some people do crazy things that make the world a better, more beautiful place a little less nasty, brutish, and short, as Tom Hobbs put it. The very best expressions of following Jesus 
are unbelievably good. But it's not because these people aren't doing these great things because they need to get something from God. They're not doing it to get something. I'm sure Dr. Foster would be a little embarrassed that we're talking about him this morning. Uh, I'm sure he's a little embarrassed about the article itself because, because Christians like Dr. Foster who really understand what Jesus did on the cross, they do all sorts of things in the world because they're thankful for what's been done for them, not to get something from God. And they want to join God in his plan to bring beauty and life to this world. You see, God, God actually made this world to be a much better, much more beautiful place than it is. The Bible tells us that God made the world and everything in it to be at peace, shalom, or, or everything being just right, beautiful. And then we went and, and we took the world and, and we made it in our own image. We went our own way as humans, away from God's plan, and we created a mess through violence, lies, greed, and jealousy. If the reason there is death and destruction in the world is because humans who are far from God are doing their own thing, what options does God have to make this world right? It seems like there's two options. The first is, well, we could get rid of all the people and the things that are doing the bad things in the world. The problem is that's you and that's me. We're the ones that bring with us sin and death and destruction to this world. Our selfishness, it ruins things. And, and God actually cares about us. We're the objects of his affection. He made us because he loves us and he wants to enjoy intimacy with us. So option one's off the table. The second option, though, is that he wants to get rid of suffering and pain and death by changing us, by teaching us a new way to be human. But you and I, we've been trying to be good our whole lives on our own. We, we strive to change, but we can't on our own. Fortunately, God had a plan to live among us, to show us this way of being human that he planned, to make beauty, to change us from the inside out by, by showing us how to do good, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Jesus was our example, and God wanted to make a way through Jesus' death to give us his spirit to help us and give us a new heart that loved and cared for people, for God's creation. See, Revelation 21, it gives us a picture of how God plans to make everything right in the end. It's a picture of how he plans to make it the beautiful place he meant it to be. This is what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the kingdom, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So we see here that God has this end game in sight. Uh, there's a plan that at the end this world will be changed and heaven and earth will come together into a restored heaven and earth where God plans to enter in 
and to get rid of tears and death, mourning and crying and pain, because God is setting all things right, and he's making all things new. See, I think that how this connects back to beauty is that that beauty that stirs our hearts, that stirs our longing and our hopes and desires, I think that this, Revelation 21, this picture is why we have those feelings. The world with all its sin and its death ultimately fades away, and all the stuff that makes this world ugly and unlivable, that will be swallowed up in God's purifying fire. His beauty will overwhelm us with awe and wonder. Beautiful songs will fill the air. God will make everything right. You and I will be captured by his vision of goodness. We will love and care for one another the way that God made us to. There will be great abundance without poverty and inequality. This is why we cry when we see beautiful stories, like amputees who are able to walk again. It's why we smile when we see an old abandoned building restored and renewed to its former glory. It's why the the story of changed lives that we share here at church and the testimonies that people give at Celebrate Recovery and the videos of transformed lives that we've been watching, they develop, they, they make us have this lump in our throat because it's what we were made for. We were made to be transformed and to experience the beauty that God made this world to be. It's why entertainment companies, they they prey on these impulses. The Biggest Loser, Extreme Makeover, Home Edition, they make the toughest of us cry, tear up, seeing lives transformed, health restored, homes rebuilt and remodeled. We are aching for God to come and to make this world right again. We were made for beauty, for joy, for a full, whole existence. We were made for the abundant life that Jesus promises And that's why we love beauty. That's why it's a part of who we are. And I think that that beauty is being restored. So we've spent the last four weeks working through different aspects of this unbelievable story that Jesus rose from the dead, that it's meaningful for us today, and that it's making a difference in the world. We talked about a reasonable faith, a historic faith, and today we're talking about a beautiful faith. Now, Brian and I realize that nothing that we've said is irrefutable. We realize that there's no argumentation, there's no reasoning, there's no evidence that's just going to blow you away so that you have to believe. Even some who saw Jesus didn't believe. But we think that what we've laid out is compelling. If it weren't compelling, we wouldn't believe it. So I may be a pastor, but I I hold on pretty tight to my doubts for a couple of reasons. The first is I'm I'm a natural cynic. I I recognize that I, as a human, am prone to self-deception, and and I don't want to live a life that's based on a lie. And secondly, um, if this isn't true, if Jesus isn't who he said he was, um, I don't want to spend the precious days of my life standing in front of you all telling you that. I don't want to spend my time lying to hundreds and thousands of people if this is not true. There's better ways for me to spend my life than this if this isn't true. But if it is true, if Jesus isn't a liar or a lunatic, but if he's actually God who came to bring us the life that he promised, it means everything. 
And I think it is. It's why I'm giving my life for it. It's why so many before me have done the same thing. I think it's because not only does the Christian's faith make the most sense out of beauty with the least amount of difficulty, but the Christian faith has this indescribable beauty that as followers of Jesus have partnered with God to start restoring the world to the beauty it was made to be, into a beautiful, safe place that's full of joy and love, I want to be a part of a movement like that. It's a beautiful, compelling story, and, and that's my invitation to you. I hope for those of you that are journeying through your doubt, that for a season you can set aside your doubt and consider, could this be true? Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you that there is beauty in the world that calls us out. Beauty that quickens our, our heart rate. Beauty that opens us up to other people. Beauty that captures us in attention to you. We pray, God, that as we try to understand you, that you bring us wisdom. That if we struggle with doubt, you'll give us the faith to believe and that you, God, will bring along people who will embody your loving care in the world and show us that you love us by that love. In your name we pray, amen. Some of you are here because your family dragged you here on Easter and you've been spending the last four weeks with us because you're, you're intrigued. And, uh, and maybe you've listened to it and you're at the point where you're like, well, that was nice, but it's not for me. That's okay. This, this faith journey, it's a long play. It's your whole life. We want to give you room to discover and to learn and to grow at your pace. And our hope is that Grace Chapel is a community where you're going to feel welcome and cared for and a, a place where you can grow and learn it. So please stick around. Hang out with us. Ask your questions. Challenge us. Let's all work together as we work through these doubts that that help us hopefully are, are a midwife to faith rather than the antithesis of faith. For some of you, you've been here four weeks and you're like, you know what? I like it. I want to be a part of that thing. I want to be a part of that beautiful story that God is writing through his followers. And uh, if that's true of you, in a few minutes, I'm, I'm going to pray. And it's a simple prayer to start this walk with God. And I, I think that uh, Jesus's words Jesus' interaction with the, the, the father of the demon-possessed boy when he says, I believe, help my unbelief, I think that that's the beginning of faith, to say, help me, God, believe. And then to say, I trust that what Jesus did on the cross, that it's enough for me to have a relationship with God. It's really that simple. And then start walking with God, show up at church, get involved with Alpha, um, just start growing and learning as much as you can. For those of you who have been following Jesus, I hope that this, this sermon series was encouraging. I hope it built you up. I hope that it helped you frame these conversations in ways that will help you have great conversations with your friends and even work through the doubts and the fears and the questions that you have. And in a second, I'm going to pray. And if, if you're ready, pray along with me. And uh, if you have questions, please email me or Pastor Brian, or even jump into the prayer chapel after service and, uh, and talk with someone. Let's pray together. Lord God, 
we, uh, we are a frail, small people, and uh, we are completely dependent on you. We didn't make ourselves. We're just here, and we're trying to figure out what this world's about. We pray, God, you give us really clear eyes and minds that we'll see you more clearly, that we'll understand ourselves, that we'll, uh, that we'll work through our doubts and our questions. Lord God, let your word be a light into our feet and a lamp into our path. And God, uh, for those that are ready to start a walk with you, I, I pray that they'll, they'll pray along with me. Jesus, we believe. Help our unbelief. God, I need you. I, I understand that Jesus' work on the cross was enough for me to have a relationship with you. And so I trust that for my salvation. Help me to walk with you the rest of my life and, and to be a part of your project of remaking this world into the world you meant it to be. Lord God, I pray for those that are still working through these questions. I pray that they'll have great friends that will walk with them through it. They'll experience your presence and your love through the people around them. And uh, that God, they'll, they'll interact with the right authors, the right thinkers, uh, even the right text of the Bible at the right times that they can work through their questions and uh, help us to be a great place for people to ask questions and grow in faith. In your name we pray. Amen.